Give yourself that space to to just think about food more, like at your own level, the individual level, but from a systems perspective. Because simple choices you can make are can be profound, both for your health and for the environment. This is On the Climate Record. I'm your host, Christoph Jospe. This podcast is to amplify ideas, the people working on them, and practical solutions to solving climate change. Hello, and welcome to On the Climate Record. My name is Christoph Jospe, and I'm your host today, and I'm joined by Dr. Christopher Wharton. He is an Associate Professor of Nutrition at the College of Health Solutions at Arizona State University, and has a really interesting background that I'm excited to dive into as it sort of spans health, nutrition, the food we put in our bodies, and how that all relates to climate change. And he happens to be a podcaster himself, so I'm a little bit intimidated. But Chris, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. So to get started, I'd love to know, what's the story that got you here today and what got you involved in nutrition in the first place? Well, it's a it's a long and meandering path. <laughs> I was actually, I changed majors a lot of times way back in college. I started out as a music major, jazz performance on guitar actually. But as I was burning out on the guitar <laughs> as an undergraduate, I had taken a, a general nutrition course and sort of fell in love. You know, as, as a lot of us get into it, like to sort of personally, what does nutrition mean to me personally? But then the science behind it as well became really intriguing. And uh, so I, I began to pursue that as a path and got into grad school and started doing research on really the, the basics of nutrition science, specifically actually how broccoli and tomatoes affect prostate cancer risk. So I was getting into phytochemicals and things like this. And so I got into the basic sciences. And as I moved on into future degrees in, in nutrition, I actually ended up in a postdoc at Yale University in a building that was shared with uh, Yale's Sustainable Foods Program. And I met some people there and learned a lot and began to make the connections between everything from like the basic sciences of nutrition and how that related all the way upstream to issues of sustainability, climate change, and how these things were just completely interrelated. And so, you know, fast forward to today as I'm in my career now, I think a lot about how people can be achieving healthful diets, you know, at that basic molecular level, all the way through to achieving diets that are helpful for the environment also. And so that's where, that's where we are now. So there's a proverbial saying that I've heard a lot. Maybe you can wax poetry here and tell me what this means. What does it mean that when you hear you are what you eat? Well, you know, it probably means two things. I mean, obviously the, the basics of that is of course, everything that we eat does become component parts of, of our literal bodies. The, the micronutrients, the elemental nutrients we put in our body become parts of our bones and our skin and, and, you know, our organs and everything else. Uh, but at the same time, I guess, you know, we, what we eat is also functional in our body too. And so everything that we consume contributes hopefully in mainly healthful ways, but actually can contribute in deleterious ways too. So it's, it's as much structure as it is function in the body is what we eat. And, you know, as it, similar to food systems. If we extend what we eat out into the world, what we eat, what we decide to eat can have positive or at least neutral and possibly negative impacts on the environment too. So the good things we do to our body often relate to good things that can happen in the environment. Uh, similarly, poor choices we can make when it comes to diet can reflect <laughs> poor use of resources out in the world. And so there's actually a lot of corollaries there. Yeah, totally. I'm going to admit, uh, 
guilty pleasure that I have, which is I love goldfish. It's, every time I'm in the supermarket, <laughs> I want to grab them off the shelf. And it's like this guilty pleasure of trying to get my nutritious foods too. But I love goldfish, but I probably shouldn't eat too many. And I've been thinking, wow, there's like very low nutritional value in this. And I'm kind of eating like cardboard that's highly processed with some tasty flavors <laughs> on top. And so I'm on my own personal quest of how to eat more nutritiously. And I really commend you for your podcast to help consumers kind of better navigate that. But okay, if I am what I eat, and I'm eating healthier, how does that actually change me and the big question? So, you know, these days, there's actually there's, there's been a lot of focus, I guess, in recent decades for a while now, actually processed foods and what that means from a health perspective. I would say, you know, especially in recent decades, that same sort of focus has been placed on processed foods as it relates to the food system and environmental impacts. But they're, you know, it becomes a little bit, you know, we can start to get into the nuances of, of our processed foods is simply bad because they are processed. No, of course they're not. But <clears throat> the, the patterns of our consumption are really the things that we should be focusing on in, in a broader way. And what I mean by that is, you know, your consumption of goldfish, <laughs> even if you eat a lot of goldfish, not really a problem if it's in the context of an otherwise healthy diet, you're physically active, you know, and you're consuming lots of plant-based foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grains along the way, you know, those guilty pleasures are, are not too big a deal as it relates to health. And in fact, you ought to have them because we should be enjoying food. But if the goldfish are representative of an overall dietary pattern that's filled with lots of other processed foods, sugary beverages, you know, snacks and sweets and candies and, and so forth, obviously then we have a pattern that is going to contribute to your risk for chronic disease, morbidity, mortality in the end. Same can be said for the planet. So when we look at the types of foods that have minimal impact on the environment in lots of different ways, it's, you know, the lesser processed foods, usually plant-based foods, because fewer resources necessarily need to go into those to get those calories to us. And as we process more, we might need to put more resources in, more fuels, more fertilizers, more energy in production facilities to produce those foods. And so they may become more resource intensive by nature. And as a result, and something I think people don't necessarily think about is that like those goldfish seem like they're ubiquitous, right? Like they are where, everywhere you look, any grocery store you go to, they always have been, they currently are, they forever will be. <laughs> but, you know, actually embedded in goldfish, just like any other food are really precious resources that we actually can run out of. And so we need to treat food with a little more sense of specialness, you know, a little more sense of value and processed food culture, I think sucks away accidentally the notion of value in food. And as a result, we can abuse those foods, I think, more easily. Some of the research we've done in the past suggests that the uniform, ubiquitous nature of processed foods can lead people to no longer see the value in it. It becomes easier to overeat and also easier to waste. And that food waste problem ends up being a real problem for the environment. Totally. And I want to dive in headfirst to the food waste subject, but not yet, because... Sure. It's very easy for us to wave our hands as individuals who think we know what nutritious food actually means and say processed food is bad. But you're an academic, you recognize it's obviously way more nuanced than that. And through some work with the soybean industry, you know, it becomes obvious that 100% of all soybeans are processed. If you want to use soy, it has to be processed. And not all processing is created equal, at least from my understanding. And so how can consumers even begin to make their 
make sense of this nuance and understand what products in processed in what way might actually be worse for their health? Yeah, that's a great question. And I mean, you're exactly right. So, you know, oatmeal is a processed food, but oatmeal is a fantastic food to be consuming, right? So it's it's not processed foods aren't somehow inherently bad. So they, they offer benefits like and there's a reason we have so much processed food around. So they are processed foods are usually packaged in boxes and bags and cans and things. So they're shelf stable, right? They preserve nutrition for us longer. And then, you know, secondly, we have had issues of foodborne illness as it relates to fresh foods for time immemorial, but processed foods minimize the risk for foodborne illness. So great things come from processed foods. There's no reason to, you know, damn the whole category altogether. But I, th I think, you know, consumers don't need to get confused by this stuff. The dietary guidelines, the basic notions in the dietary guidelines for Americans, which is just the set of like guidance that the government puts out every, every so often, have been the same for a century, which is eat more fruits and vegetables, eat more whole grains, be moderate in your intake of these problematic nutrients in our diet. And I think most people kind of know what those are, like sodium, saturated fat. We've heard about that. You know, added sugars, probably people have heard more of, especially recently. So when you look at foods, when they're processed, I, there's a couple indicators I think that you can look at. If you look at a food and you see that there's fiber in there, that's a great start. So, you know, bread-based or like grain-based products, the more fiber you see, probably the better off you are. And I mentioned that because even if it's processed, you're sort of balancing some of the more problematic nutrients with the nutrients that is really important for health that Americans chronically underconsume, which is secondly, you can look at, I mean, if you want to get into the numbers, you can look at the nutrition facts labels and look at those things that we know are, are a problem, like saturated fat, sodium, added sugars. And if you see that there's a big percentage there, you know, that's something to say, okay, I, I don't have to avoid this altogether, but this is like a sometimes food, not an all the time food. And the more often you can get closer to quote unquote, fresh foods, the better. And what I mean by that is there are processed foods that are in cans and bags. So like frozen vegetables or canned vegetables, these are fantastic foods that provide as much nutrition as perhaps fresh foods, maybe even more in certain ways. So, so those are things just to be keeping in mind that, you know, all processed foods certainly aren't bad. There's a couple of ways to be thinking about how to incorporate them in more helpful ways. Absolutely. When I was growing up, I learned about food and nutrition through the food pyramid Mm -hmm. And I forget, I'll have to find where I read it, but I saw some news not too long ago that said the food pyramid's outdated. We should be thinking about these various buckets differently. What is the food pyramid and why are people saying maybe we should be revisiting the various buckets? Yeah, good question. So, well, they're right in that the food pyramid is no longer. So there is no food guide pyramid anymore. <laughs> there, there used to be one and it was associated with the US dietary guidelines for Americans. And so this is something that, that a couple of federal agencies put out usually every five years and update every five years. That's been going on for a long time now. And these dietary guidelines are embodied in a graphic that used to be the food guide pyramid. Maybe a decade or so ago, it got turned into my pyramid. And now it's my plate. So there is no food pyramid anymore, which used to be this hierarchical organization of food groups and like how much you should be eating of different food groups. Now there is my plate, which represents sort of a dinner plate that is sectioned off to say, you know, proportionally, 
here's what you should be thinking about a way to divide up your plate with fruits and vegetables, grains, protein products, dairy. Okay. So, so that's what exists now. And there are, there is still controversy surrounding that. Some would contend that there's some politics at play when it gets into how my plate is structured and updated. Others would say that, you know, it looks fine, but we could actually be more nuanced in how we think about it. For example, there's a group of epidemiologists at Harvard University led by Walter Willett and some other nutrition epidemiologists who would say, we can take my plate or pyramid or, or whatever the graphic is and be smarter about how we tell people how to eat. So instead of just talking about grains making up, say, roughly a quarter of your plate, let's talk about whole grains making up the majority of your grains intake and processed grains or refined grains like white breads and things like that being a small minority of, of the types of grains that you consume. And when it comes to fats and oils, and let's not just talk about how many calories from those things we should have, but let's talk about more healthful versions of fats and oils to be consuming versus less healthful versions. So there are nuances there that people contend with, but all that stuff aside, the basic message is still really important, um, which is half that plate is made up of fruits and vegetables. And that is in stark contrast to all that we know about American dietary patterns generally, which is Americans 80 to 90% fail to consume adequate servings of fruits and vegetables and fiber. And so it's it's a, a major problem that is really closely connected to chronic disease risk and, and longevity and everything else. So it's really important that we think about helping people just meet that basic first rule, which is eat more plant foods, specifically fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and uh, you'll be doing a lot better. Absolutely. Makes a lot of sense. And along with my affection for goldfish, I actually <laughs> have, this was my first year of having a pretty substantial garden where we have way more food than we can eat. And nothing beats like going to my garden and picking a fresh tomato and that being on my plate like a minute later and in mm -hmm. my mouth. And there's a real nice connection that I get through that relationship of knowing where my food's coming from and knowing it's actually super healthy for me. I feel lucky my parents always maybe eat my fruits and vegetables. So I kind of like, but some kids don't, they leave them on their plate and that gets thrown out and that leads to food waste, which is an enormous problem. So shock us, Chris, what are the numbers for food waste? Why should we be concerned about it? <laughs> it's, it is phenomenally substantial. So when you think about, so, so food waste is this problem. I think that's finally gaining more you know, attention when it comes to popular press and media and things like that. But still, people don't pay a whole lot of attention to it. And I think mainly the reason is partly, you know, in terms of drivers, we have this processed food culture, and it just seems like food is always there for, for most of us. Obviously, there are many people in the country who are food insecure. It's a totally different situation there. But, you know, we see food everywhere. So it feels like there's not a problem. That's a very happy problem to have. But when we waste food and it goes into this magic bucket, we call the trash can, it just disappears from our lives. Or when we're in a restaurant and we eat maybe half the meal that we're served, it gets taken away and it is gone, right? So we don't necessarily have a, a mechanism to be thinking about it, but it is phenomenally huge. So, you know, of the 400 and roughly 30 billion pounds of food made available to consumers every single year in the US, about a third of that, 130 billion pounds or so, is wasted. And so that's from that's USDA data from maybe a decade ago, but that's the most recent data that that I've seen. It's over $160 billion of retail value is food that is lost. And it represents 150 trillion calories worth of food that gets thrown away. 
Now, some of that stuff is inevitable. It, it's impossible probably to use 100% of our food, but there's probably a huge space there for us to be able to think different about our sort of like personal food system, how we acquire food, how we store it, how we utilize it to really minimize that. Because food waste, uh, we contend in my lab, some of the research that we do, it clearly is an environmental problem. But from a household perspective, it's also a health problem and it's a financial problem, right? When you think about, you know, the average family of four could be throwing out upwards of $1,000 of food every year on average. I mean, for many families, that's a that's a huge chunk of change that could be perhaps better utilized. And at the same time, the largest proportion of food waste in households in the U.S. is fruits, vegetables, you know, usually perishable foods. And so those are lost opportunities to eat healthfully, right? So there's a lot of issues embedded in the food that we throw out that could be really positive if we can kind of turn that problem around. Yeah, there's a lot there that <laughs> kind of decide what, one way to take it. Do you believe in the five second? Yeah, you know that. that sure, <laughs> I, I believe in the farm effect. Actually, that's what we say in my house household a lot because I have two young kids and a toddler, and and we always say farm effect, which is you know, of course, you drop food on the floor. There's going to get some probably some nasty stuff on it, unless it's like a something that's really like moist and wet that's going to pick up like really gross stuff off the floor. You know, it's like yeah, go ahead and eat it. It's fine. We'll get some we'll get some microbes in there. That'll be good for it. You know, to train up your immune system. So don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we, we try not to waste too much food off the floor. Okay, that was, that, that was a softball, but I also want, I threw that out jokingly, but seriously, to put on one end of the spectrum of solutions that we can adopt immediately to waste less food. And there's something much better on the other end of the spectrum. So could you kind of paint the picture of the various solutions out there that will that are happening now or could happen if we are to move from this state that I think you would agree is imperfect. It might even be a crisis of wasting food when you have people going impoverished and growing food that maybe we don't need to be growing in the first place or growing crops and pretending that they're food. But what are the solutions today that someone who's interested in this topic can kind of glom onto or follow? And when I say solutions, that can be anything from just a really good idea to a startup company, to an initiative that a major food company itself is adopting in order to reduce the food waste crisis? Yeah, great question. So, I mean, there are solutions all over the place. And I guess the first thing to say is, you know, we have, if you think about food across the supply chain, you know, there, there are problems of food losses on the farm, right? Another problem of food losses in storage and in distribution, production, and, and all of those things. Where my lab and my work has been focused is really on consumers. So individuals every day, you know, out there, we're buying food, we're using food, we're throwing food out. Like, what can we do in our own lives practically to, to minimize food waste? Because that is the largest in, in developed countries amongst the retail and consumer levels. That's the largest proportion of food waste. In developing countries, it's usually more up in the supply chain. So the production, distribution, and all of that. So, so that I would locate some of the stuff I'm about to talk about amongst consumers, which I think is, is exciting because if it is such a huge problem, and it is, if you actually, if you took the food that is thrown out and the methane produced from it in the US, it would represent, well, actually globally, it would represent the third largest source of methane emissions in the world, anthropogenic methane emissions. And so it's a massive problem for climate change. But that also means we have huge agency. We as consumers, as individuals, as families, we have big opportunities to make a change and have a beneficial impact there. So anyway, when it comes to solutions for consumers, 
it's, it's, it's about thinking about how we treat food a little bit differently. I mean, the reason I kind of brought up the notion of value inherent in food is that food is, is so cheap in the U.S. Its price has gone down so drastically in the last century that it's, it's kind of easier for us to waste. But if we start to think about its impacts on health and sustainability finances a little bit differently, we might be more motivated to make some of these changes. And, and they're easy things to do. So we actually built a website as part of a study we ran a while back. And maybe in the notes, we can share the link. This actually delineates a lot of the stuff I could talk about here. But even, you know, starting at the grocery store. So going to the grocery store, most people might have a general idea of what they're going to be buying. They may go on an empty stomach and they're hungry. <laughs> they may not necessarily have a complete plan of what they need to buy or what they're going to be using for the week or however many days they're buying for. It's easy in that case to overbuy. And a big portion of food waste ends up being foods that people buy. Maybe it's on sale. Maybe there's a, like a big bulk item that you didn't think you wanted, but you saw it's cheap for the amount. And so you buy it. These are foods that may not have a fate, right? Like you didn't predetermine, oh, this is, I need these foods for this meal or this food for my kids' lunches or whatever else. And those foods sit on the shelf and they sit and sit and sit. And then eventually people are like, oh, we're not using this. It gets thrown out. Those sorts of things can happen. And actually going to the grocery store on an empty stomach can actually cause you to overbuy and then waste. So on the website, we actually provided a simple little system, um, described this in our podcast to a way that you can throughout the week kind of track what's needed and be much more prepared when you go to the grocery store so that you buy only what you need for the next period of time before you go to the shop again. The idea there is that now all your foods have a fate. You'll actually save money that way and waste less food on the other end. So there's strategic shopping to be done. There's, of course, simple storage strategies, like how do you store food so that they last the longest, depending on the type of food. There are recipe strategies. So if you have bananas you know, that are starting to turn brown and nobody's going to eat them as a snack anymore, you can peel them, throw them in the, the freezer, and then use them later for a healthy smoothie for your kids. Ideas for stuff that's about to go bad you know, that you could then utilize. So there are recipes, there's storage tips, there's grocery shopping trips, there's organization of your kitchen. So I won't go into all this, but suffice it to say, running through a couple simple strategies and being a little bit strategic about how you treat food from purchase all the way through to usage can help you save a ton of money, can help you eat more healthfully, and can avoid food waste. So that's just like eliminating stuff from going in the garbage in the first place. Yeah, thank you. And just kind of pulling you out of your comfort zone from the consumer level, there's so much more when you look at households. You know, there's some... I really appreciate your view of like, let's look at this like a pattern, like on a pattern level, what do humans do with each other? One of the things we like to do is break bread. Like imagine the households sharing meals or having potlucks also as a food waste strategy, because then it's like you sort of de-risks food that everyone likes and hopefully everything will get finished. And you always find that one person who wants to take the leftovers home, stuff like that. I, I recall I'll throw it in the show notes. It's a pretty cool startup or nonprofit called Rock and Wrap It Up. And when I was living in New York City, volunteered a little bit with, can't believe I would say this on the air, but I also got free tickets to the shows that they were at. But what they did is at the end of the night, all the food that went uncooked, they collected it. And then they, the next day, brought it to a homeless shelter so that the homeless shelter would have food to consume in order to sort of find waste reducing opportunities. Yeah, stuff like that. But curious, maybe, you know, Keep going. I'll give you another food waste one. 
never thought I'd say this on the show, but I'm going to give props to Walmart for having a really smart contracting strategy in place where farmers usually will grow more crops than the off-taker is willing to buy. And that's a problem because if you don't sell those crops, they're just going to sit there and waste. And Mm -hmm. so Walmart sort of putting procurement and uptake agreements in place such that there is an overproduction, they will actually buy those crops so it doesn't go to waste. And that is kind of embedded in Walmart's greenhouse gas production strategy. What else you got, Chris? Yeah, well, I think grocery stores are starting to do a lot of good things. So there's a lot of, there are gleaning programs, gleaning meaning that foods that are that are going to be pulled off shelves. There are pre-existing agreements, like you said, with nonprofits of those types that can take those foods and make their way into either emergency food programs for those who are underserved or maybe even uh, utilized in like soup kitchens and other ways so that it can be um, provided in hot meals and things like that. So there are ways to connect the food waste problem with the issues of food security in the country. Those, those are growing in number, but there's still a lot of work to be done. You know, that the analogy of breaking bread together and, and ways to share food such that, you know, food doesn't go to waste <clears throat> on a grander scale, that ends up being a big problem too. When you look at municipalities and, and conference centers where uh, things are catered. So look at a big conference you may go to. A lot of people in different professions go to conferences. Usually when those things are catered, probably on average, the caterer will supply, will require almost that they, that the organizer will buy one third more food than is actually required because it would be real bad look if they ran out of food for people at this conference, right? And so that ends up being a lot of food waste. Now, a great example of how to combat that is MGM Grand International. So I was in Las Vegas a little while back and had a chance to meet with the sustainability directors of MGM Grand International. They run a number of hotels, not only in Las Vegas, but all over the world. And I was in the bowels of the Aria and saw all of the sustainability things that they were doing. And it was phenomenal. But a big part of their food waste reduction strategy was to serve foods in such a way for conferences that they could pull those foods back. They had actually invested in flash freezers in coordination with a nonprofit that was local. And when food wasn't utilized, because like I said, you know, roughly one third of food will not get utilized, they'll pull it back, flash freeze it and then deliver to the nonprofit who can then utilize it in secondary ways. So those sorts of connections are being better made now. So those are good things. That's, that's still sort of like consumer retail-ish facing. When it comes to you know, other pieces of the supply chain, I think the, the US generally does a pretty good job in trying to minimize food waste through the supply chain with good handling practices, good manufacturing practices. These are sort of like regulations that are in place to make sure food remains food safe throughout. But still, there's there's a lot more that can be done. And I think innovations in capturing those foods, diverting them to secondary marketplaces, there's a whole like ugly food you know, uh, type of movement that can find secondary marketplaces for foods that otherwise wouldn't be brought into you know, production facilities or whatever else. So people are thinking a lot more about that now. And there's there, thankfully there are markets that are growing in relation to those foods so that they don't get wasted. Yeah. Just as we're throwing other solutions out there, I compost a little bit, find that's really useful for my organics. And I had the luxury of house sitting for three weeks, cold, wintry time in Minnesota. And there were 23 chickens and those chickens, my gosh, they ate just about every food scrap that we didn't. So there was zero food waste, which is another kind of regenerative system. And of course, you know, the chicken litter is actually really valuable as a soil amendment under the right conditions. 
For sure. Actually, so, you know, many people don't have access to the, you know, the space for animals or even the space for composting necessarily. But but for those who do, who maybe have never thought about composting before. So we compost at, at my, I live in a little, little starter home out here in Arizona, and we, we have composted for years. I, I am terrible at gardening. I've attempted to garden two or three times and I have failed every single time. I think I've grown like basically a baby carrot and like one Florida broccoli. And so I don't garden anymore, but we still compost and it almost doesn't matter because the, the elements out here bake down our compost so completely that we have literally been composting for about a decade and have never pulled anything out of our compost bucket because it just keeps getting, you know, eaten away by, you know, critters and insects and gets baked down by the elements and that's it. So we don't throw out any food waste. We just compost, even though we don't use a compost for anything. <laughs> You're still sitting on black gold. So yeah. how, how does this all link together when it comes to what we're doing on the planet in our fight against climate change? Well, I think the the first thing is this there there need to be systems level solutions and that's you know that's the stuff where corporations make big changes in how they operate or even you know federal government comes in and designs new laws and regulations to make things operate differently or incentivize new practices all that stuff that's really sort of out of the hands of the, of the consumer but there's also the opportunity for most of us in the country most of us, not all of us, because there are plenty of people whose first concern ought not to be food waste. It, it needs to be elsewhere. So those who are underserved, low income, obviously need to be thinking about different things. But most of us, I'd say, you know, sort of middle income on up, really have the opportunity to kind of think differently about food and do some simple different things in our homes that can dramatically reduce food waste, affording us more opportunities to eat healthfully, saving us money. And so I, I would say the first thing is, you know, support those corporations who are trying to do the right thing, who are looking to infuse sustainability into their practices with your dollars, with your, you know, the services, products they, they provide. But then think about what you can be doing in your own home. Then visit the website and you'll see how actually easy it is to just make a few changes in how you operate with the food in your home and then start saving food, saving money, eating better. We ran a study, a food waste reduction study in, in collaboration with the city of Phoenix. And all we did in that study was provide education through this very website I'm talking about. And we showed actually over the course of five weeks, people just being exposed to this education that they significantly reduced their food waste. <clears throat> and in exit interviews with the participants, we had about 60-ish households involved in the study. Many of them said that they also started to eat healthier along the way. We weren't trying to push healthy diets, but there's something about thinking about the value of food that helps people care more, both in terms of how they eat and how they waste. And so there are lots of po possible ancillary beneficial effects. And the more you do that, you know, the less impact you have on the environment, the healthier you eat, likely the less impact you have on the environment. So there's just this sort of synergistic positivity that can come out of thinking about food waste and trying to reduce it. Yeah. One of my favorite adages is an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And it just seems so obvious to me that if we look at our the budget we spend on healthcare and we start wondering how much is that because we as Americans, let's just look at the US, how much is that? Because we as Americans are, you know, trying to deal with our dietary needs. There's a whole pharmaceutical industry to say, we'll we'll fix the symptoms. 
but there's not necessarily enough. Let's build a strong foundation so we never need to address those symptoms in the first place. Now, cynically, I don't think that's taken off because that hasn't been profitable. Am I right or wrong? Do you agree? Are, are you the new guy saying there's a smile? Of it? No, this is profitable. And the way it's profitable is you're going to save money on your food bill. Yeah, I, that's, I think, you know, well, so I'll step back. This, uh, this study that I was just describing that we ran and we published uh, this past year or so, we actually were very conscientious about how we designed the education and, and the information. We designed it so that people could just practically apply it in their lives, but we infused it with three different sets of values. One was focused on sustainability. So how does food waste impact the environment? Two was health. How does food waste impact your ability to eat healthfully? And then three was finances. How does food waste impact your wallet or your purse kind of thing? And the idea was, you know, some people may care very much about the environment and be motivated by that, but not care at all about, say, money or whatever else. Some people maybe, maybe care about health specifically and nothing else. Some people may care about finances and nothing else or some combination of those. And each one of those routes to a behavior change is absolutely fine and, and totally appropriate. But because food waste hits dramatically in all those areas, there are good, good reasons to make changes no matter what it is you care about, right? So the values inherent there are, are multiple, but they all end up leading to the same place. Like reducing food waste is, is good no matter kind of where, where you're coming from. I'm forgetting now why I got on that tangent. What was the question? <laughs> oh, that's a great statement. And I appreciate it. The, the question is, I was trying to punch you to see how far you would go or if you'd, you'd take my bait here. Oh, Just yeah, yeah. Comes to, we could, yeah, we could save money on pharmaceuticals <clears throat> if we ate healthier. Yeah. But that's not profitable. So that's why we're not doing it. That's my premise. Yeah. So, well, I, I would say this, that's a, I think that's a, a fair point, but part of that I think is actually like grounded in the type of country we are, or the, the type of society that we are. So we're very individualistic in the U S different than, you know, lots of other countries where there's more of a familial or more social orientation towards how people behave in the US, we're very individualistic. And as a result, I think there's a, a real focus on, you know, without thinking about politics or political parties, there's a real focus on, you know, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, you know, your choice to be healthy is up to you. You know, you're the one that goes out for a walk or a run every day or does not. You're the one who puts fork to mouth and eats healthfully or does not. It's up to you, right? And to extent, an extent, I think that's true. I think there are really important ways that that's not true, especially for people who don't have access to healthy food in the first place or can't afford it, or people who don't have access to safe neighborhoods and, and well-built sidewalks that are light lit, you know, lit and this sort of thing. But in a lot of ways, there is the opportunity to be more focused on the choices that you make. It's just that our systems aren't designed for that. They were not optimized for that or are not optimized for that anymore. So what have we optimized our systems for? And this is like a, this is sort of another philosophical approach of the research we do in my lab. It's that when you look around, our systems are optimized to reduce or eliminate physical activity and make food and its consumption as quick and convenient as possible. So really we've optimized things to minimize labor, like physical labor in our lives so we can do other stuff, maybe work longer or entertain ourselves more. And so those are fine outcomes if those are things you value. Um, but it makes it real hard to walk or bike to run errands, especially if you live anywhere other than like a safe urban area, right? It makes it real hard to have time or give yourself time to 
prepare foods in ways that are likely to be healthier than the types of foods you buy when you go out. And then you see it play out at a systems level or sort of like a patterns level. So for the first time, as of like a few years ago, for the first time ever, Americans spend more money on food away from the home than they do on food for in-home consumption. So we're buying more food out than we are probably groceries. We know that when we eat food out, we waste a lot of it, we spend more money per calorie, and we eat more of the problematic nutrients like sodium, added sugars, saturated fat, than we would if we ate food at home. So, But that's what we've sort of optimized, many of us have optimized our, our systems for. So I mention all this because we can make individual choices that are different, could be better, but we have to kind of grate against a system that's optimized for something different. And that's what makes it hard for so many people to adopt healthier diets and be like, oh, I'll just stick with this now or be more physically active and be like, okay, I can do this every day because our lives aren't designed for that. And so it's really not just about questioning your individual behavior, but thinking about the environment around you and how you can contend with that or alter it so that defaults are set in so that you can actually operate healthfully in a way that doesn't grate against the things that are going on around you. Does that make sense? It does. It's an excellent answer and it resonates very much. I also, I mean, I'm, I'm proud to be an American. I think the individualism of America is pretty phenomenal. And I'm also extremely fortunate to have always ate healthy food, to have never lived in a food desert or to have never had to worry about where my next meal is even coming from. And so when we look at these kind of structural systems in place, it gets really complicated to, I think you put it, you're spot on by saying it's an optimization question. And what do we as a society want to wake up to and say, we want to optimize for nutrition, for healthy food, mm -hmm. for access, for being able to walk to a grocery within 10 blocks or something. And mm -hmm. it's just not mm -hmm. there, but it's exciting to have this conversation to talk about how to get it there. And I hope if you're listening right now, you feel a little bit inspired to go out and do something positive that's reducing food waste and deepening your relationship with nutrition. But do you have any final words, Chris, for any, and you've given so much advice, so feel free to pass, but any final reflections that you'd like to make on this podcast? I guess I'd just say that, well, two things. One, for those of us with the means, and I, I say that really, really intentionally, and I don't mean people who are wealthy, but people who have some time and some capacity to make different choices, because there are many people in the country who don't necessarily have that. And that's, that's sort of what you just mentioned. We privilege the opportunity to think differently about things because we have the means. But, but there are many people who do have the opportunity to maybe make different choices or think a little bit differently about things give yourself that space to, to just think about food more, like at your own level, the individual level, but from a systems perspective, because simple choices you can make are, can be profound both for your health and for the environment. And there are, there are simple changes you can make in, in your home environment that allow for you to do good things for the health of you, your family and, and the earth. So that's one thing is that those big profound changes are right there in your home to make often. And that's exciting because like it doesn't have to be this huge, difficult thing. It can be these simple strategies that, that are really meaningful if lots of people are doing them. I had something else in mind, but now it's escaping me. So I, I guess I, I just want to reinforce the notion that we have agency. There's real opportunity. There's, let me put it this way. 
there's a lot of doom scrolling, you know, climate change is coming. There's, there's fires, there's floods, there's droughts, there's the world is ending. Everybody hates each other, blah, blah, blah. Right. The news can suck away the notion that there is hope and opportunity. And I would just say food waste being seemingly maybe a niche kind of area for people to, to be thinking about. That's a place where there's huge opportunity and where everybody can come around a common cause and, and do real good for each other, their community, the earth. So don't let the, the, seeming doom of of the world via the news, you know, take away your hope. There's huge hope and an opportunity for us to do real good for ourselves and for others. Great words to end with. It reminds me of a fortune cookie I once got that I always remember. It's perpetual optimism is a force multiplier. And so thanks for leaving us with optimism and enthusiasm around this great and simple solution set. And all of the great ideas you shared will be in the show notes. And thanks again for coming on. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of On the Climate Record. This episode was made possible with the support of Arizona State University. If you liked this episode, please share it and rate and review us in your favorite podcasting app.